Welcome to Between Two Barrels, a twice-weekly podcast recorded at Studio 66, presented by Tennessee Legend Distillery. Between Two Barrels is a show that highlights legends of all shapes and sizes from across the state of Tennessee. From the queen of country Dolly Parton to the elusive Tennessee Wildman. From our head distiller to our legendary staff and products. On this show, you will learn some terms of the alcohol industry, as well as learn some awesome recipes for food and cocktails alike. Join us as we journey through the volunteer state to bring you stories of legends that involve the beautiful state of Tennessee, from country music as well as rock and roll royalty, cryptids, distillery origins, carbonated beverage beginnings, and everything in between. This show truly highlights what makes a legend a Tennessee legend. What's up, legends, and welcome back to another episode of the Between Two Barrels podcast. I am one of the hosts, Opie, and joined, of course, by the co-host, B-Low. What's up, Brian? Not a whole lot, man. Um, getting back into the office after having some mm. maladies, if you will, between dealing with a specific respiratory uh, infection as well as um, finding out that I really don't have a whole lot of cartilage, cartilage left mm. uh, in between a couple of the, the lumbar vertebrae. <laughs> by after the holidays and kind of I guess through the holidays have been a, a little worse for wear but uh, still here still kicking especially after we did those New Year's episodes talking about how you start the year is how your year's gonna go uh, hopefully that's not, the, <laughs> hopefully case. That's not uh, the case more along the lines of who you have in your house mm. uh, and their personalities and stuff like that is a p- possible indicator um, if that's the case we really didn't have anybody over at the house so gotcha um, hopefully we made it past the, the time frame that that's, that's a possibility, but got some, I don't know who I'd consider it really exciting news as far as at the distillery. Um, but we do have the, um, change of our, uh, placemats upcoming. Uh, yeah. uh, we do have a lot of our products that will become seasonal products. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening, there are a few products that we do still have. I don't want to say an abundance of. Um, but we'll probably make it till around spring break with a few other products that are going to be uh, more seasonal products mm. for us in both moonshines and whiskeys. Uh, so whenever you come in, hopefully you'll be given the rundown or the lowdown, as it were, uh, to nice. to turn a phrase. But yeah, uh, definitely got a few few things making their way uh, out the door, but only for a period of time. And then we also have some other flavors that are going to be gone. Uh, the way of the dodo, as it were, at this point. Um, but as we know, with some sort of DNA technologies and stuff like that, we may wind up being able to revive some yeah, of we those. We might not be able to use the dodo as know, an example anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, some of those uh, revived, once thought to be extinct flavors. Well, I know that they thought talk about bringing the woolly mammoth back. And to be honest, I don't think that's a good idea. Why wouldn't you want a hairy elephant around? Yeah, they're, too, they're just too big. I'm a firm believer that just if it's that big, like snakes, spiders, if they get to a certain point, I feel like we should write a letter to God and be like, this is ridiculous. 
Well, I mean the fact that we used to have rolls here. Uh, megafauna. Yeah. There used to have giant sloths too. Yeah. Yeah. That dug tunnels. Yeah. They didn't live in trees. They dug tunnels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, megaflora, megafauna. There's actually some megaflora that still exists, mm-hmm. but not to the sizing of what it did years past. Um, but megafauna is definitely something that really no longer exists, yeah. uh, unless you consider a tiger mm-hmm. megafauna. Um, but it's still not entirely. Yeah. That's the the last remaining remnants. Yeah, that elephants, you know, something yeah. like that. Something uh, rhinos are are considered megafauna, but not the way they used to be. They're like half of what the size yeah. they used to be even now. So yeah. Beyond that, a uh, little dip into a uh, Discovery Channel special. <laughs> um, the the store hours have kind of cut back some, and they may even cut back a little bit more um, because we have found ourselves more of a pre-COVID sense in terms of business, how much traffic is coming into the Sevier mm. County area. Used to, during the months of January and February, it was literally dead as can be except if you were going skiing up in Gatlinburg. Um, Of course, COVID happened. Everything during that portion of the year just kind of ground to a halt. Mm. But then the following year, people were so cooped up, depending on where they were at in the country because of how the the different lockdown mandates Mm -hmm. and stuff like that happened, um, were more apt to travel during the the winter months uh, just for a way to escape and get away from that now that we're you know in our fourth year or mm-hmm. going into our fourth year post covid post 2020 mm-hmm. it's gone kind of back to way the tourism industry and the amount of travel to the area was before mm-hmm. covid happened BC. so yeah bc before covid in BC this and ac so I, I wonder if we're gonna have to yeah uh that might be the new Naming or whatever mark time instead of BCAD or yeah, BCE ADE, it's going to be BC and AC. Mm. Yeah, beyond that, uh, yeah. everything is is looking up. We're definitely excited with some uh, potential new releases mm-hmm. uh, with our partnered branding company with Anthem Spirits throughout the early part of this year, uh, as well as possibility for some new non-flavored products that are just our own just Tennessee mm-hmm. legend distillery products by themselves. Uh, but I don't think we're going to have anything flavored coming out until late in the year, probably yeah. third going into fourth quarter. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's pretty much all that's going on, uh, in the store right now. But if you, uh, haven't already, make sure that you follow us, uh, through studio 66 or through Tennessee legend distillery directly, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube channel. Uh, you can always email us uh, for any kind of updates or anything like that at tldtube23 at gmail.com. Today we are discussing a musical artist that has sold roughly 400 million records worldwide, known as one of the best selling artists of all time, and only recently had that record broken successfully spanning multiple genres including pop, country, R&B, adult contemporary, and gospel. This person has won three Grammy Awards, received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award at the age of 36, and has been inducted into multiple halls of fame. 
holding several records, including the most RIAA-certified gold and platinum albums, the most albums charted on the Billboard 200, the most number one albums by a solo artist on the UK albums chart, and the most number one singles by any act on the UK singles chart. In 2018, was awarded posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom. This entertainer's energized interpretations of songs and provocative performance style combined with a singularly potent mix of influences across color lines during a transformative era in race relations brought both great success and initial controversy. Born in Tupelo, Mississippi, relocating to Memphis, Tennessee at the age of 13, with their music career starting in 1954 at Sun Records with Sam Phillips, pioneer of the rockabilly sound and starred in multiple movies, known of course as one of the most significant cultural figures of the 20th century, but best known as the king of rock and roll, we are talking about today, Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley. And also his entrance uh, is one of my favorites because usually after he started doing the Live Vegas performances Mm -hmm. would do the 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. He would. And we all know why I like that one, especially if you're a listener of the Cocky Top podcast because the University of South Carolina Gamecocks have used that as their entrance for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. Now Elvis, uh, Aaron Presley... Born January 8th, 1935, unfortunately, uh, passed August 16th, 1977. You're actually hearing this on Tuesday the 9th, but we are recording on the 8th, which is his birthday. Yes, sir. Happy Um, birthday in legend and in the great beyond to the king of rock and roll. Absolutely. Now, excuse me. Uh, Like we said, Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi. His family relocated to Memphis, Tennessee when he was just 13 years old. His music career began there in Memphis in 1954 at Sun Records with producer Sam Phillips, who wanted to bring the sound of African-American music to a wider audience. Presley on guitar and accompanied by lead guitarist Scotty Moore and bassist Bill Black was a pioneer, like we said earlier, of the rockabilly sound, which is an up-tempo, backbeat-driven fusion of country music and rhythm and blues. In 1955, drummer DJ Fontana joined to complete the lineup of Presley's classic quartet, and RCA Victor acquired his contract in a deal arranged by Colonel Tom Parker. And as y'all know, if you've seen any of the Elvis or the recent Elvis biopic or anything like that, uh, that would be the villain. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Of the story, one of the villains, one of the main villains. There were a few villains in the right the the legacy and uh, epic that is Elvis Presley's story. Now Parker would go on to manage him for more than two decades, and his first RCA Victor single. Heartbreak Hotel was released in January 1956 and became a number one hit in the United States. Within a year, RCA Victor would sell 10 million Presley singles. I want you to think about that for just a moment. In 1956, within a year, he sold 10 million singles for the one song. Wow. We're about to celebrate the 70th anniversary of Heartbreak Hotel. 
Yeah. That's crazy. With a series of successful television appearances and chart-topping records, Presley became the leading figure of the newly popular rock and roll through his, like we said earlier, performative style and promotion of the then-marginalized sound of African Americans led him to being widely considered a threat to the moral well-being of the white American youth. Mm. And you see, if you watched uh, Walk the Line, yeah, it was that was referenced yeah. to in a lot of that stuff, and of course in the spoof um, Walk, Hard. Walk Hard. Now, in November 1956, Presley made his film debut in Love Me Tender. Afterwards, drafted into military service in 1958, he relaunched his recording career two years later with some of his most commercially successful work. He held a few concerts, however, and guided by Parker, proceeded to devote much of the 1960s to making Hollywood films and soundtrack albums, most of them critically derided. Some of Presley's most famous films, though, include Jailhouse Rock in 1957, Blue Hawaii in 1961, and Viva Las Vegas in 1964. In 1968, following a seven-year break from live performances, he returned to the stage in the acclaimed NBC television comeback special simply entitled Elvis, which led to an extended Las Vegas concert residency and a string of highly profitable tours. In 1973, Presley gave the first concert by a solo artist to be broadcast around the world with Aloha from Hawaii. However, years of prescription drug abuse and unhealthy eating habits severely compromised his health, and Presley unfortunately died unexpectedly in August 1977 at his Graceland estate at the age of 42. Don't really want to think about that at the moment, considering the fact that I just recently got put on several different prescription medications, and I am unhealthily overweight for my uh, height at the moment. So yeah, not something that I really want to be reading or talking about, and definitely don't want to go the same way as the king in that capacity. Now, having sold, like we said earlier, uh, roughly 400 million records worldwide, Presley is one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Mm -hmm. Commercially successful in many genres, like we said, including pop, country, rhythm and blues, adult contemporary, and gospel. Said he won three Academy or Grammy Awards, received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, inducted into multiple halls of fame, holding several records, and just the number of, of... songs and albums mm. is just staggering um, insane library very very insane library now we're not going to be able to get too in depth on a lot of this stuff because if you really want to get fully into the life and times of Elvis there have been multiple documentaries you've got the biopics uh, that we mentioned um, you've also got uh like we said, uh, references in um, Walk Hard uh, or uh, Walk, Walk the, the Line and yeah, uh, all of those. So you definitely have plenty of source material to be able to go check out a lot of this stuff if you want to get fully into it. We're just going to hit some more of the highlights, yeah. as it were. Uh, but like we said, born on January 8th, 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi to Vernon Presley and Gladys Love Presley. Elvis's twin, Jesse Guerin, was unfortunately delivered stillborn 
and Presley became close to both parents, especially his mother. The family attended an Assembly of God church where he found his initial musical inspiration. Then Vernon moved from one odd job to the next, talking about his dad. And the family often relied on neighbors and government food assistance. In the 1938, they lost their home after Vernon was found guilty of altering a check and jailed for quite some time. In September 1941, Presley entered first grade at East Tupelo Consolidated, where his teachers regarded him as average. His first public performance was a singing contest at one of the Mississippi, Alabama Fair and Dairy Shows on October the 3rd, 1945 when he was only 10 years old he sang old shep and recalled placing fifth a few months later presley received his first guitar for his birthday and he received guitar lessons from two uncles and a pastor at the family's church presley recalled i took the guitar and i watched people and i learned to play a little bit but i would never sing in public i was very shy about it then in September 1946, Presley entered a new school, Milam, for sixth grade. The following year, he began singing and playing his guitar at school. He was often teased as a trashy kid who played hillbilly music. <laughs> Presley was a devotee of Mississippi Slim's radio show, and he was described as crazy about music by Slim's younger brother, one of Presley's classmates. Slim showed Presley chord techniques and when his protege was 12, Slim scheduled him for two on-air performances. Presley was overcome by stage fright the first time, but performed the following week. Now in November 1948, the family moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Enrolled at L.C. Humes High School, Presley received a C in music in 8th grade. And when his music teacher said he had no aptitude for singing, he brought in his guitar and sang a recent hit, Keep Them Cold Icy Fingers Off of Me. That sounds like something my wife would say, except instead of fingers, it'd be toes. Mm -hmm. um, he was usually too shy to perform openly and was occasionally bullied by classmates for being a mama's boy. In 1950, Presley began practicing guitar under the tutelage of Lee Denson, a neighbor, they and three other boys, including two future rockabilly pioneers, brothers Dorsey and Johnny Burnett, formed a loose musical collective. That is actually when my junior year English teacher, Mrs. Word, lived next door to him in Memphis. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. She used to tell it. She'd be like, well, when I live, when I live next door to Elvis, and she'd tell us a lot of the stuff that you just said. That he was bullied and stuff and considered average and 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 it's just kind of I don't want to say weird I mean it's just odd to, to think and I don't even Elvis say odd but average. yeah somebody being as him being average or below or yeah. having stage fright and stuff like that it just it doesn't yeah. seem wow yeah now, during his junior year, Presley began to stand out among his classmates, largely because of his appearance. He grew his sideburns and styled his hair. He would head down to Beale Street, the heart of Memphis, thriving blues scene, and admire the wild, flashy clothes at Lansky Brothers. And by his senior year, he was wearing those clothes. He competed in Hume's annual minstrel show 
1953, singing and playing Till I Waltz Again With You, a recent hit for Teresa Brewer, and Presley recalled that the performance did much for his reputation. He went on to say, I wasn't popular in school. I failed music, only thing I ever failed. And then they entered me in this talent show. When I came on stage, I heard people kind of rumbling and whispering and so forth because nobody knew I even sang. It was amazing how people or how popular I became in school after that. And if that hasn't been like a thing, like you could take somebody who you wouldn't think would be up for doing anything like that. Yeah. And you have one of the assemblies where they're doing like the, um, at one point in time you actually had speeches and people would campaign and stuff like that for class yeah. president and stuff yeah. like that. Now anymore. And even whenever I graduated in 99, it was all more about a skit. Like you went yeah. out and did some sort of like SNL skit or something yeah. like that. One of the popular ones that got, uh, one guy, the, the either Mr. SCHS or, uh, um, mm president or something like that was him and his friends wound up coming out as the nwo huh. and they did a, a a little bit of wrestling and stuff like that there in the gymnasium but each one of them had their own personalities one of them was uh St- or hall uh mm. one of them was hogan nash. one of them was nash you know they all took on these individual uh personas and stuff like that but with some slight name changes to okay. fit, you know, their name together with the the wrestler's name and stuff yeah. like that. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I could imagine being the same thing and people becoming wildly popular, especially if they were unknowns prior to that. And that's something that you probably see as a recurring theme in a lot of of Hollywood pictures. I mean, the new guy, DJ Qualls. Yeah. Doing the new guy, it was the same thing. Went from relatively unknown, is able to get a fresh start on everything by, you know, doing something out of the ordinary or, you know, just making yourself stand out uh, as opposed to being just another. That happened to me in middle school. My eighth grade year, I was uh, quiet, kind of picked on, different. Uh, My eighth grade year, the eighth grade talent show. I got up and sang Joe Nichols' The Impossible, and people lost it, and a lot of things changed that day because they didn't know I could sing, let alone that I had any talent other than talking about Dragon Ball Z. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know anything else, but if you ask me a DBZ question, (laughs) I'll be able to answer you in a heartbeat. (laughs) I didn't really have anything like that uh, for me. I stayed pretty much a... um, a social chameleon mm. throughout my entire well let me say this after i left south carolina in what would have been after my sixth grade year mm-hmm. i did my seventh grade um no i take that back i did uh through seventh grade in south carolina my eighth grade year was in georgia and then i started up here in what would have been my freshman year high school mm-hmm. ninth year um up through uh, primary and my first couple of years, mm-hmm. a lot of people knew me, but not in that type of sense. I didn't yeah. really have like a, a a major whatever, but I mean, people knew who I were in the classes and stuff like that because we had been around for so many years and stuff like that. Once I went to Georgia, it was a situation where I became a minority. Mm. 
And that's what was like a, a, a indicator or the, oh, he's one of the few white guys yeah. that goes to the school. Yeah. Um, and at that point is whenever I tried to develop that whole social chameleon aspect just so that way I wasn't being picked on as being a minority blend in and I found enough. ways to, to be able to blend in and be accepted socially yeah. by these different people uh, and then whenever I got up here I mean I just moved from knowing everybody to not knowing hardly anybody gaining acceptance by all these people and then the very next year having to do all of that over again but then it went back to a situation where I was no longer a minority but I also didn't feel like I needed to do anything to really make myself stand out at any point in time in that aspect Uh, because I know we've talked about this before I didn't really get into anything theater until I started working for a theater theater, yeah. yeah before that I mean I was just I don't even know what my direction was or anything like that. I don't honestly think I've ever had a full-fledged direction. I just exist and make the best of everything that I can at that particular moment in time uh, without tons of forethought or foresight. Uh, Presley, who could not read music, played by ear, and frequented record stores that provided jukeboxes and listening booths. He knew all of Hank Snow's songs, and he loved records by other country singers such as Roy Acuff, Ernest Tubb, Ted Daffin, Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Dazewitz, and Bob Wills. The Southern gospel singer Jake Hess was one of his favorite performers with a significant influence on his ballad singing style. Presley was a regular audience member at the monthly all-night singings downtown, where many of the white gospel groups that perform reflected the influence of African-American spirituals. Presley listened to regional radio stations such as WDIA that played what were then called race records, spirituals, blues, and the modern backbeat-heavy rhythm and blues. Like some of his peers, he may have attended blues venues only on nights designated for exclusively white audiences, and many of his future recordings were inspired by local African-American musicians such as Arthur Crudup and Rufus Thomas. Now, B.B. King recalled that he had known Presley before he was popular when they both used to frequent Beale Street, and by the time he graduated high school in June 1953, Presley had singled out music as his future. Could you imagine that having basically your life figured out by the time you graduated and knew what you were going to do, what you were going to focus your life on at that point. I still feel like I haven't honestly even gotten, you know, a full grasp. Like I'm here at this job and I'm going to do this job to the best of my abilities. And I'm going to stay here and continue to progress in it until I either get told stop or (laughs) get sent down the road. Yeah. Um, But I, I couldn't have, said yes I had everything planned out and ready to go from high school no that's just putting too much pressure on yourself in some instances people who plan their lives that way the pressure you put on yourself you wonder why they're crazy right now we had talked about to begin with uh, how he first recorded with Sam Phillips and Sun Records in August 1953 he checked into the Memphis recording service the company run by Sam Phillips before he started Sun Records. 
He aimed to pay for the studio time to record a two-sided acetate disc, My Happiness, and that's when your heartaches begin. So an A and B side that actually were kind of like intertwined in terms of my happiness being the one side and the reverse side being that's when your heartaches begin. So I wonder if those two directly correlated to the other. My happiness is where your heartache begins. Mm. He later claimed that he intended the record as a birthday gift for his mother or that he was merely interested in what he sounded like. Biographer Peter Gralnick argued that Presley chose Sun in the hope of being discovered. In January 1954, Presley cut a second acetate at Sun with I'll Never Stand in Your Way and It Wouldn't Be the Same Without You. But again, nothing came of it. Not long after, though, he failed an audition for a vocal quartet, The Songfellows, and another for the band of Eddie Bond. Just think about that for a second. How would you feel if you were the people that turned down Elvis? Would it be more of a situation to where the people that turned him down gave him more more oomph to to push more. himself yeah. even further? Yeah. But still, I, so. I mean, to and be then the... afterwards, I would be like, mm. I don't know if I should be like, you know what? I created Elvis by turning him down. Or right. if I'd be like, damn me. Right. <laughs> I guess that's I the, I knew it all. the the mentalities, the thought process of someone. Are you the type of person that would say, "Oh, it's 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 because of me that he went yeah. on to become successful. If I hadn't have turned him down, turn him down, he wouldn't have." Or well, there was a uh, at East High School when I was there, or a little bit after I was there. Uh, the I don't know if you've ever heard this. I wasn't a part of it. The, the Young Life. It's like a Christian group. It's like a high school after yeah, school yeah. group. The guy who ran the Hamlin County Young Life, when he was in high school and early college, before he started leading this Young Life group, he dated the female singer of, uh, oh, what are their names? If I Die Young, Bury Me in Satin. You know, her. Let Me Down with a Better Rose. Is that girl? Dated her. Okay. Broke up with her because she was too big of a dreamer. (laughs) <laughs> if you'd only stuck with it, bro. If and you'd then only stuck she with went it. on to become a famous country singer. I mean, he called her. And, and he I'm, I saying, hope she wound up just saying, oh, sorry, she bye. She was like, uh, excuse you? And he was like, I think I made a mistake. And she goes, I know you did. Right. Bye. No, now's not the time <laughs> to be realizing <laughs> yeah. that you made a mistake. I know you did. Bye. Bye, boy. Going back, Phillips, meanwhile, was always on the lookout for someone who could bring to a broader audience the sound of the black musicians whom Sun focused. In June, he acquired a demo recording by Jimmy Sweeney of a ballad, Without You, that he thought might suit Presley. The teenage singer came by the studio but was unable to do it justice. Despite this, Phillips asked Presley to sing other numbers and was sufficiently affected by what he had heard, to invite two local mu- musicians, uh, guitarist Winfield Scotty Moore and upright bass player Bill Black, which we had mentioned earlier, to work with Presley for a recording session. The session held the evening of July 5th proved entirely unfruitful until late in the night. As they were about to abort and go home, Presley launched into a 1946 blues number, Arthur Crudup's That's All Right. 
Moore recalled, all of a sudden, Elvis just started singing this song, jumping around and acting the fool. And then Bill picked up the bass and he started acting the fool too. And I just started playing with him. Phillips quickly began tapping. This was the sound that he had been looking for. And three days later, popular Memphis disc jockey Dewey Phillips, no relation to Sam Phillips, played That's All Right on this red, hot, and blue show. Listener interest was such that Phillips played the record repeatedly during the remaining two hours of his show. Back to back to back. That reminds me of the joke of, I can't remember the comedian, walking into a, a diner and he decides to go up to the jukebox and he plays like What's New Pussycat over and over and over uh, and over again. Mulaney. Yeah. yeah Mulaney talks and then about at it. one point in time he puts in uh, uh, It's Not Unusual. It's not unusual. Yeah. And then wound up picking a whole bunch more yeah. of What's New Pussycats right yeah. after it. But I mean, imagine a radio station. Like you couldn't get away from it other than, you know, trying to tune in another station. And most of the times back at that point in time, you could only get whatever that one radio station in like a 50 mile radius was. So them playing that's all right over and over and over again. It's uh, what was that fundraiser that you guys did? Oh, the, uh, stop the bop. Yeah. My senior year of high school playing bop over and over and over again. The number of times during class changes. Yeah. (sighs) Raised a lot of money that year. (laughs) I would imagine (laughs) so. Listener interest, like we were saying, was such that Phillips played the record repeatedly during the remaining two hours of his show. Interviewing Presley on air, Phillips asked him what high school he attended to clarify his color for the many callers who had assumed that he was black. Now, during the next few days, the two recorded a bluegrass song, which was Bill Monroe's Blue Moon of Kentucky, again in a distinctive style and enjoying a jury-rigged echo effect that Sam Phillips dubbed a slap back a single was pressed with that's all right on the a side and blue moon of kentucky on the reverse i don't know what i would do to be able to get a copy of that single with that's all right on one side and blue moon of kentucky on the other because i I mean expensive oh i'm sure they are uh and blue moon of kentucky being referenced several times in different things one of the most notable ones that pops in my head um, is the episode of King of the Hill where they all wind up traveling to Nashville to to be in this uh, bluegrass band competition. They take Connie, uh, Bobby's uh, girlfriend and stuff like that, and then eventually Dale winds up convincing uh, uh, Charlie Daniels <laughs> yeah. to, to join the band. And it's one of the few times that you can actually understand what Boomhauer is saying because he's the lead vocalist and he actually sings, sings. Blue Moon of Kentucky. Blue Moon of Kentucky, yeah. Now, um, early live performances and RCA Victor contract. Um, the two played publicly for the first time at the Bon Air Club on July 17, 1954. Later that month, they appeared at the Overton Park Shell with Slim Whitman headlining. Here, Elvis pioneered Rubber Legs, his signature dance movement. Mm. I didn't know that it actually had a name. That it's rubber legs. Well, he learned it from Forrest Gump. That's right. You remember he learned that one from, <laughs> he did Forrest, learn it from Gump. Forrest Gump. A combination of his strong response to rhythm and nervousness led Presley to shake his legs as he performed. His wide cut pants emphasized his movements, causing young women in the audience to start screaming. 
Moore recalled, during the instrumental parts, he would back off from the mic and be playing and shaking, and the crowd would just go wild. Some people would probably say, that boy's having a seizure. Mm-hmm. And all the while, all the younger girls are just out there screaming, losing hollering, their losing minds. their minds, going crazy after it. Now, soon after, Moore and Black left their old band to play with Presley regularly, and disc jockey promoter Bob Neal became the trio's manager. From August through October, they played, fre- played frequently at the Eagle's Nest Club, a dance venue in Memphis, and when Presley played, teenagers rushed from the pool to fill the club, then left again as the House Western Swing Band resumed. Presley quickly grew more confident on stage, according to Moore. His quick... <coughs> excuse me. His movement was a natural thing, but he was also very conscious of what got a reaction. He'd do something one time, and then he would expand on it real quick. Amid these live performances, Presley returned to Sun Studio for more recording sessions and made what would be his only appearance on Nashville's Grand Ole Opry on October 2nd. Opry manager Jim Denny told Phillips that his singer was not bad, but did not suit the program. So once again, Elvis Presley being snubbed by a specific genre of the music industry, and, well, we know what happens from there. In November 1954, Presley performed on Louisiana Hayride, the Opry's chief and more adventurous rival. The show was broadcast to 198 radio stations in 28 states, and his nervous first set drew a muted reaction. A more composed and interjected second set inspired an enthusiastic response. Soon after the show, the Hayride engaged Presley for a year's worth of Saturday night appearances. Trading in his old guitar for $8, he purchased a Martin instrument for $175, equivalent to $1,900 just a couple of years ago in 2022. And his trio began playing in new locales including Houston, Texas, uh, Houston, and Texarkana. Presley made his first television appearance on the KSLA TV broadcast of Louisiana Hayride, and soon after he failed an audition for Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts on the CBS television network. Who else would have been coming out at that point in time that would have... I mean, I know that there's the controversy as far as his dancing and him sounding you know, like an African-American singing and stuff like that at that point in time. It, maybe that was enough to to kind of keep him at bay for a few years, um, or to to try to keep him out of certain things. But it just seems like again, the more times that someone stood in his way, he wound up going above and beyond. Like, screw you guys, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, by early 1955, Presley's regular hayride appearances, constant touring, and well-received record releases had made him a regional star. In January, Neil signed a formal management contract with Presley and brought him to the attention of Colonel Tom Parker, whom he considered the best promoter in the music business. Having successfully managed the top country star, Eddie Arnold, Parker was working with the new number one country singer, Hank Snow. Parker booked Presley on Snow's February tour. By August, Sun had released 10 sides credited Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, the latest recordings included a drummer. Some of the songs like That's Alright were in that one Memphis journalist described as the R&B idiom of Negro field jazz. 
Others, like Blue Moon of Kentucky, were more in the country field, but there was a curious blending of the two different musics in both. This blend of styles made it difficult for Presley's music to find radio airplay. Now, according to Neil, many country music disc jockeys would not play it because Presley sounded too much like a black artist and none of the R&B stations would touch him because he sounded too much like a hillbilly. The blend became known as Rockabilly, and at the time, Presley was billed as the king of Western bop, the hillbilly cat, and the Memphis Flash. The Could you imagine those cat. being the, your nicknames? The king of Western bop, the hillbilly cat, or the Memphis Flash. Now, Presley renewed Neal's management contract in August of 1955, simultaneously appointing Parker as his special advisor. The group maintained an extensive touring schedule, and Neal recalled it was almost frightening. The reaction that came to Elvis from the teenage boys, so many of them through some sort of jealousy would practically hate him. There were occasions in some towns in Texas when we'd have to be sure to have a police guard because somebody'd always try to take a crack at him, and the trio became a quartet when Hayride drummer Fontana joined as a full-fledged member. Now, in mid-October, they played a few shows in support of Bill Haley, whose Rock Around the Clock track had been number one hit in the previous year, and Haley observed that Presley had a natural feel for rhythm and advised him to sing fewer ballads. And at the Country Disc Jockey Convention in early November, Presley was voted as the year's most promising male artist. After three major labels made offers of up to $25,000, Parker and Phillips struck a deal with RCA Victor on November 21st to acquire Presley's son contract for an unprecedented $40,000. But of course, at at this point in time, that would be a multi-million dollar contract. that would be a multi-million dollar contract. Presley, at the age of 20, was legally still a minor at that point, so his father signed the contract. Parker arranged with the owners of Hill and Range Publishing, Gene and Julian Aberbach, to create two entities, Elvis Presley Music and Gladys Music, to handle all the new material recorded by Presley. Songwriters were obliged to forego one-third of their customary royalties in exchange for having Presley perform their compositions. By December, RCA had begun to heavily promote its new singer and before months in had reissued many of his son recordings. Now, in 1956 to 1958 is whenever the commercial breakout and controversy would go on to begin. On January 10th, 1956, Presley made his first recordings for RCA Victor in Nashville, extending his by now customary backup of Moore, Black, and Fontana and Hayride pianist Floyd Kramer who had been performing at live club dates with Presley, RCA Victor enlisted guitarist Chet Atkins, name should sound familiar, Mm -hmm. and three background singers, including Gordon Stoker of the popular Jordan Ayers Quartet. The session produced the moody Heartbreak Hotel, released as a single on January 27th, and Parker brought Presley to national television, booking him on CBS's stage show for six appearances over two months. The program, produced in New York City, was hosted on alternate weeks by big band leaders and brothers Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey. After his first appearance on January 28th, Presley stayed in town to record at RCA Victor's New York studio, and the sessions yielded eight songs, including a cover of Carl Perkins' Rockabilly Anthem, 
blue suede shoes. And in February, Presley's I Forgot to Remember to Forget, a Sun recording released for previous August, reached the top of the Billboard Country chart, and Neil's contract was terminated and Parker became Presley's manager at that point. Now, RCA Victor released Presley's self-titled debut album on March 23rd, joined by five previously unreleased Sun recordings. Its seven recently recorded tracks included two country songs, a bouncy pop tune, and what would certainly define the evolving sound of rock and roll, Blue Suede Shoes. An improvement over Perkins in almost every way, according to the critic Robert Hilburn, and three R&B numbers that had been part of Presley's stage repertoire, covers of Little Richard, Ray Charles, and The Drifters, as described by Hilburn, saying these were the most revealing of all, unlike many white artists who wanted to down, who watered down the gritty edges of the original R&B versions of songs in the 50s. Presley reshaped them. He not only injected the tunes with his own vocal character, but also made guitar, not piano, the lead instrument in all three cases. It became the first rock and roll album to top the Billboard chart, a position it held for 10 weeks. While Presley was not an innovative guitarist like Moore or contemporary African-American rockers Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, cultural historian Gilbert B. Rodman argued that the album's cover image of Elvis having the time of his life on stage with a guitar in his hands played a crucial role in positioning the guitar as the instrument that best captured the style and spirit of his new music. On April 3rd, Presley made the first of two appearances on NBC's The Milton Berle Show, and his performance on the deck of the USS Hancock in San Diego, California, prompted cheers and screams from an audience of sailors and their dates. A few days later, Presley and his band were flying to Nashville for a recording session when an engine died and the plane almost went down over Arkansas. Twelve weeks after its original release, Heartbreak Hotel became Presley's first number one pop hit, and in late April, he began a two-week residency at the New Frontier Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. The shows were poorly received by the conservative middle-aged hotel guests, like a jug of corn liquor at a champagne party, wrote a critic for Newsweek. Amid his Vegas tenure, Presley, who had acting ambitions, signed a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures, where he began a tour of the Midwest in May, covering 15 cities in as many days. He had attended several shows by Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys in Vegas and was struck by their cover of Hound Dog, a hit in 1953 blues singer Big Mama Thornton by songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. It became his new closing number. And after a show in La Crosse, Wisconsin, an urgent message on the letterhead of the local Catholic diocese newspaper was sent to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and it warned that Presley is a definite danger to the security of the United States. His actions and motions were such as to arouse the sexual passions of teenage youth. After the show, more than 1,000 teenagers tried to gang into Presley's room at the auditorium and indications of the harm indications of the harm Presley did just in lacrosse were two high school girls whose abdomen and thigh had Presley's autograph. His second Milton Berle show appearance came on June 5th at NBC's Hollywood studio amid other hectic tour. 
Milton Berle persuaded Presley to leave his guitar backstage. And during the performance, Presley abruptly halted an up-tempo rendition of Hound Dog and launched into a slow, grinding version accentuated with exaggerated body movements. His gyrations created a storm of controversy, with television critics being outraged, and Jack Gould of the New York Times wrote, Mr. Presley has no discernible singing ability. His phrasing, if it can be called that, consists of the stereotyped variations that go with a beginner's aria in a bathtub. His one specialty is an accented movement of the body, primarily identified with the repertoire of the blonde bombshells of the burlesque runway. Uh, ben Gross of the New York Daily News opined that popular music has reached its lowest depths in the grunt and groin antics of one Elvis Presley. Elvis, who rotates his pelvis, gave an exhibition that was suggestive and vulgar, tinged with the kind of animalism that should be confined to dives and bordellos. Ed Sullivan, whose variety show was the nation's most popular, declared Presley unfit for family viewing, and to Presley's displeasure, he was soon found himself being referred to as Elvis the Pelvis, which he called childish. And it is. I mean, you've got some of these people who were at that time in like their 40s, 50s, 60s that just are calling this guy all sorts of names and everything else. And and yeah. Continuing on, the Burl shows drew such high ratings that Presley was booked for a July 1st appearance on NBC's The Steve Allen Show in New York. Allen, who is no fan of rock and roll, introduced a new Elvis in a white bow tie and black tails. Presley sang Hound Dog for less than a minute to a basset hound wearing a top hat and bow tie. He hated it. Absolutely hated it. As described by television historian Jake Austin, Allen thought Presley was talentless and absurd. Set things up so that Presley would show his uh, contrition. And Allen later wrote that he found Presley's strange, gangly country boy charisma, his hard-to-define cuteness, and his charming eccentricity intriguing and worked him into the comedy fabric of his program. And just before the final rehearsal for the show, Presley told a reporter, I don't want to do anything to make people dislike me. I think TV is important. So I'm going to go along, but I won't be able to give the kind of show that I do in a personal appearance. Presley would refer back to the Allen show as the most ridiculous performance of his career, and later that night he appeared on High Gardener Calling, a popular local television show, pressed on whether he had learned anything about the criticism of him, he responded with, No, I haven't. I don't see how any type of music would have any bad influence on people when it's only music. How would rock and roll music make anyone rebel against their parents? The next day, Presley recorded Hound Dog, Any Way You Want Me, and Don't Be Cruel. As Jordan Ayer sang harmony on this as they had the Steve Allen show, and they would work with Presley throughout the 1960s. A few days later, Presley made an outdoor concert appearance in Memphis at which he announced, You know, those people in New York are not going to change me none. I'm going to show you what the real Elvis is like tonight. And in August, a judge in Jacksonville, Florida, ordered Presley to tame his act, the censorship in its earliest forms, Throughout the following performance, he largely kept still except for wiggling his little finger suggestively in the mockery of the order, and the single pairing Don't Be Cruel with Hound Dog ruled the top of the charts for 11 weeks. 
a mark, of course, that would not be surpassed for another 36 years. And recording sessions for Presley's second album took place in Hollywood early in September with Lieber and Stoller, the writers of The Hound Dog, uh, contributed to Love Me. And moving on and getting into crazier times, especially during uh, tour dates, the audience's response at Presley's live shows became increasingly fevered. Moore recalled he'd start out, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, and they'd just go to pieces. They'd always react the same way. There'd be a riot every time. And at the two concerts he performed in September at the Mississippi-Alabama Fair and Dairy Show, 50 National Guardsmen were added to the police detail to prevent a ruckus. According to Girl Nick, the halting chords of the somewhat stumbling rhythm showed the unmistakable emotion and the equally unmistakable valuing of emotion over technique. Assessing the musical and cultural impact of Presley's recordings from That's Alright through Elvis, rock critic Dave Marsh wrote that these records, more than any others, contain the seeds of what rock and roll was, has been, and most likely what it may foreseeably become. Uh, later on, Presley did return to the Ed Sullivan Show, hosted this time by its namesake. And on October 28th, after the performance, crowds in Nashville and St. Louis burned him in effigy. Going on, his first motion picture, Love Me Tender, was released on November the 21st, about a month later. And though he was not top billed, the film's original title, The Reno Brothers, was changed to capitalize on the latest number one record, Love Me Tender. I wonder if that was like the beginning of like having title tracks or like um, whatever the title is is said at some point in time. In the song. Yeah, or in the movie or whatnot. To further take advantage of Presley's popularity, four musical numbers were added to what was originally a straight acting role and the film was panned by critics but did very well at the box office. (laughs) Just right there, early signs critics don't know what they're talking about Presley would receive top billing on every subsequent film he made on December 4th Presley dropped into Sun Records where Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis were recording and had an impromptu jam session along with Johnny Cash though Phillips no longer had the right to release any Presley material he made sure that the session was captured on tape and the results none officially released for 25 years became known as the million dollar quartet recordings The year ended with a front-page story in the Wall Street Journal reporting that Presley Merchandise had brought in $22 million on top of his record sales. Billboard's declaration that he had placed more songs in the top 100 than any other artist since records were first charted, and in his first full year at RCA Victor, then the record industry's largest company, Presley had accounted for over 50% of the label's single sales. Who was it that we recently talked about that accounted for something like that, something insane like that? Dolly? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Of course, later on, you know, Elvis did wind up getting drafted mm-hmm. into the Army. Yeah. Um, he made his final appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show on January 6, 1957. On this occasion, indeed shot only down, uh, down to the waist, so basically waist up. They weren't going to show his hips or anything lower. Uh, commentators have claimed that Parker orchestrated an appearance of censorship to generate publicity. In any event, as critic Grell Marcus describes, 
Presley did not tie himself down, leaving behind the bland clothes he had worn on his first two shows. He stepped out into the outlandish costume of a Pasha, if not a harem girl, from the makeup over his eyes, the hair falling in his face, and the overwhelmingly sexual cast of his mouth. He was playing Rudolph Valentino in The Shelk with all stops out. And to close, displaying his range and defying Sullivan's wishes, Presley sang a gentle black spiritual peace in the valley and at the end of the show Sullivan declared Presley a real decent and fine boy and then two days later the Memphis draft board announced that Presley would be classified 1A and would probably be drafted sometime later that year um, each of the three singles released in the first half of 57 went to number one with too much all shook up and let me be your teddy bear already an international star he was attracting fans even where his music was not officially released. The New York Times reported that pressings of his music on discarded x-ray plates were commanding high prices in Leningrad, and Presley purchased his 18-room mansion Graceland on March 19, 1957. Before the purchase, he recorded Loving You, the soundtrack to his second film, which was released in July, and it was his third straight number one album. The title track was written by Lieber and Stoller, who were then retained to write four of the six songs recorded at the sessions for Jailhouse Rock, which would have been Presley's next film. The songwriting team effectively produced the Jailhouse Sessions and developed a close working relationship with Presley, who came to regard them as his good luck charm. He was fast, said Lieber. Any demo you gave him, he knew by heart in ten minutes and the title track became another number one hit, as was the Jailhouse Rock EP. And continuing on, I mean, there's so many different um, movies and songs that he wound up uh, recording, and of course, eventually getting into specific albums, like Christmas albums that he had recorded, um, so many other things. And it wasn't until March 24th, 1958, that he was drafted into the United States Army at Fort Charles in Arkansas. His arrival was a major media event, and hundreds of people descended upon Presley as he stepped from the bus. Photographers accompanied him into the installation, and Presley announced that he was looking forward to his military service, saying that he did not want to be treated any differently from anyone else. Now, between March 28th and September 17th of that same year, Presley completed basic training and advanced training at Fort Hood, Texas, where he was temporarily assigned to Company A, 2nd Division, Medium Tank Battalion, 37th Armor. And during the two weeks leave between his basic and advanced training in early June, he recorded five songs in Nashville. Wow. In the middle of serving in a war after basic training and before getting deployed, I'm going to go record five songs. Um, in early August, his mother unfortunately was diagnosed with hepatitis and her condition rapidly worsened. Presley was granted emergency leave to visit her and arrived in Memphis on August 12th. Unfortunately, two days later, she did pass of heart failure at the age of 46. And Presley, of course, was devastated and was never the same. Their relationship had remained extremely close even into his adulthood and they would use baby talk with each other, and Presley would address her with pet names. After he endured that, he wound up going back out, and in October 1st, 58, he was assigned to the 1st Medium Tank Battalion, 32nd Armor, 3rd Division, 
at Ray Barracks, West Germany, where he served as an armor intelligence specialist. On November 27th, he was promoted to Private First Class and on June 1st, 1959, Specialist Fourth Class. While on maneuvers, he was introduced to amphetamines and became practically evangelical about their benefits, not only for energy but for strength and weight loss. Karate, of course, became a lifelong interest. He studied with Jürgen Seidel and later included it in his live performances. Fellow soldiers have attested to Presley's wish to be seen as an able, ordinary soldier despite his fame, and to his generosity, he donated his army pay to charity, purchased television sets for the base, and bought an extra set of fatigues for everyone in his outfit. He also pro was promoted to sergeant on February 11th, 1960. Looking to satisfy your sweet tooth while visiting the Smoky Mountains? Check out Adina's Sweet Shop, a treasure cottage of baked goods nestled in the heart of the Smokies in Gatlinburg. They create the most delectable homemade cupcakes, chocolates, pastries, pies, and so much more, including over 20 flavors of the best ice cream you've ever had. And don't forget to check out their selection of boozy favorites as well. Locals and visitors alike have raved about Adina's desserts, and once you've tried them, so will you. At Adina's Sweet Shop, there is truly something for everyone. Just minutes from Dollywood or the mountains, you can find them at 170 Glades Road in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or online at adinasweetshop.com. And tell her you heard about them from Tennessee Legend Distillery. Speaking As of this legend, when we planned this episode out, we knew that there was only one person we really needed on this episode other than the two of us and that is our resident merchandising manager yes. and elvis presley super fan mallory mallory is on the show today now how up, are you guys how is your beginning of 2024 going um i really can't remember where 2023 ended and 2024 has started for the most part um so i guess you could say good nothing bad mm. <laughs> nothing bad has happened as of yet uh had a little incident with the munchkin, thought it was going to take a turn, but it's it's on the upswing now. That's good. So, yeah, as long as it stays like this. It's good. It's inventory time here at TLD. About got that wrapped up, thank goodness. Good. It's been a busy couple of weeks trying to get that finalized and everything where it needs to be, but I'm pretty sure we've about hit the end of that so far. Good. Good. Any new design ideas that you can cut us in on a little exclusive news oh new designs there's always new designs in the works um one of the ones that we've been looking at uh we actually discussed the other day doing something uh think abbey road cover mm -hmm. okay it's everybody's seen it whether they know oh, what it yeah. is or what it isn't but we want to take it and twist it to to us mm -hmm. you know we we do the walk among legends design yeah. well how can we keep with that but incorporate new so Walk Among Legends, Abbey Road design, but we're going to do it do it our way. I like that. That's going to be a cool shirt. That's, that's one of the biggest designs that I'm like excited to see how it's really going to play out when it all comes down. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. I just figured we would ask you a few questions. We typically deep dive into uh, his, would deep dive into his story and his past and his origins and all that, which we will get to, but... I uh, wanted to ask our, our Elvis superfans <laughs> some questions. First, why Elvis? What about 
this individual in our history <laughs> made you a super fan? I actually might be able to answer this one. I was like, Brian can probably tell you early exposure, very early exposure is just and kind a of, lot and a, and a not necessarily amount. like an. I wouldn't say an overexposure. <laughs> it would have been an overexposure for me at my age, but because yeah. she was still full fledged in the sponge, you know, ah, sponge brain part of her development. Three, two, three, that four was, years old. Like that was yeah. my almost my every day listening. Um, like and it just it it stuck. And then getting a little older, that's actually where where I first. Uh, got introduced to the live performance theater mm-hmm. aspect um, that we see all over this area yeah. at this point. Um, one of the theaters here in town, my dad actually, uh, he did some special events there, and uh, he would make guest appearances, I guess you could say, for different special events, and I was always there. Yeah. Being an Elvis tribute theater that it was at the time, that was... <laughs> I mean, it was perfect yeah. for me. I really couldn't have asked for anything better. And then getting older, just something about the charisma of the man on stage, any kind of mm. live performance, the energy, like he took and he just absorbed and everything that he absorbed, he threw back to the audience the way he would the way he would laugh and cut up on stage. Like that was his happy place. Like it, it made you want to be a part of it too, or at least it did for me. Mm. And it just, it's something that, you know, Musicians have come and go, bands. I have so many bands that I, I love to listen to, but the comfort for me of listening to Elvis, it's its something that I get out of his music that I don't get from anything else. And it's not even all of his music. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I have my favorites. I don't know that I could pick one, but yeah. overall, it's just you could tell that he was passionate about something. And yeah. you could tell when he wasn't passionate about something, yeah. too. And I think that's what I really liked is he... He did it, but you can tell where he where his heart lies with the music. Yeah. So so you were addicted to the passion. Absolutely, the energy, the drive. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic thing to see, and even to see a tribute artist, you know, doing his rendition of what Elvis would have done. Like yeah. That to be a successful tribute artist, you have to share that quality. Yeah. Some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them look like him, some of them sound like him. But they don't they don't give the energy that he gave. Wow. I like that. So what was your first memory? Like you still to this day like, oh I remember that song or that moment. Um <laughs> so speaking of tribute artists, um my first Elvis memory would be the song Love Me Tender. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen one of his performances during the slow songs, the love songs, he was notorious for giving out scarves. I was probably, gosh, three, four years old, was over at the theater watching the show, minding my own business. Well, Love Me Tender comes on. Mom takes me down to the stage, pops me up on the stage, because Lord knows I was not tall enough to see over it or for them to see me. And they actually, like, brought me onto the stage, gave me a big old hug, threw that scarf around my neck, threw that kiss on my cheek, and I was in heaven from that <laughs> moment on. Like, that's that's all that mattered to me from that point on. Do you still have the scarf? I wish. Oh, I wish more than anything I did. I think a few of them were actually lost in a house fire. 
Um, and then some of the others that I've tried to hang on to over the years, just between moving and mm. what's really important, what's yeah. really a necessity. Unfortunately, yeah. we have to make the decision to let some of those, you know, valuable to the heart things that are just kind of in the way. You have to let them go. But if I had any of them, there's one in particular that I wish I had, knowing now what I wish I would have known yeah. then. Um, I had a scarf that was signed by the one and only Charlie Hodge. Mm-hmm. You've talked about Charlie a lot before. Charlie was a cool guy, you know, and like once again, knowing now what I wish I'd known then, like I would have spent more time talking and learning and taking advantage of the opportunities that I had I had right in front of me because he was actually working at the theater. Uh-huh. So just that continuous day in and day out interaction, which at the time being little was like okay that's cool yeah now it's like oh my gosh like i had this handed to me on a silver platter i should have taken advantage of it but hindsight you know for those of you that don't know charlie hodge very close friend and confidant absolutely uh, as well as band member yeah vocal coach vocal everything Mm -hmm. for presley yeah, they met in the army and they they clicked. You know, Charlie had been singing with several like gospel quartets and stuff like mm. that, which is where Elvis's heart lo- truly yeah. lied yeah. with music is that that gospel upbringing, and he loved that quartet style. Um, the That's Blackwood a- Brothers were a big group. He actually mm. wanted to be a member of the Blackwood Brothers. Later on in life, wound up getting to work with a descendant of the Ron original Blackwood w. Brothers yep. with R. W. Yep. and Donna Blackwood. So full circle moment there as well um pretty cool but yeah um that's probably one the one piece of memorabilia that i i had mm. and uh it, it disappeared somewhere somewhere in somehow, the mix yeah. but yeah so that's a that's an ultimate fan moment i guess you could say but the gospel roots and gospel fandom is a staple amongst uh, Mississippi born. Absolutely. Uh, that's all you had. Tennessee inherited. That's all you had was those, performers. those, those church socials, man. Oh, that's, yeah. That was your entertainment. Friday night, you didn't have anything else to do. You were in one of two places. You were in a bar, or you were in church. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are your thoughts about the recent uh, biopics about both Elvis and Priscilla? Um,. So I haven't seen the last one that El- or that Priscilla put out, the, mm. the most recent. I haven't seen it yet. Mm. Um, it's one of those I have to be in the right, aka I have to have quiet time yes. where I can sit yeah. <laughs> and focus. Um, but uh, the Elvis biopic that uh, Baz Luhrmann, it was it was fantastic um, from a fan standpoint. You know, it, if you haven't actually spent time into the backstory of Elvis and you just kind of followed along to the music, it was really eye-opening for yeah. for for someone, a super fan like myself yeah. that has done their digging, that has done their backstory. Um, a lot of it wasn't necessarily new information, but the way it was executed, the way it was brought to life, I was I was really impressed with. Um, I don't necessarily know that it could have it could have done better in in certain aspects but there's always room for improvement mm. but i don't i don't know that it could have gone any 
worse with the crew that was put together. Austin Butler did a fantastic, fantastic job making that conversion. Mm-hmm. I was extremely impressed. And that was one of the things that I was most leery about, like being that super fan. It's like, okay, yeah. you have one chance to really get this right. And they nailed it. Mm-hmm. Like, Austin just... Well, now he's kind of stuck in it. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's a bad thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to be mad about it. No, if it's something that he's just, he's done it so long. I mean, the, the hours and weeks and months and all the time that he spent dedicating himself to this role, it's really kind of impressive because if you look back and, you know, when Elvis was doing his acting, yeah. he committed himself to the role. Whether he liked it, whether he didn't, he committed to the role. And that's the person that he was for the duration of the filming mm-hmm. of whatever movie he was working on at the time. I was pleasantly surprised. The fact that they showed that Colonel Parker was um, questionable at best mm-hmm. at times and not always out. Obviously the, not out the, for the, what the was good for Elvis. Story. He yeah. was... But then the point that they made that, you know, Elvis threw all of these things away or he put everything he had into the music, but he did it for the fans. And it's like, yes. So as a fan, there is that guilt trip, I guess you could say, which I mean, let's face it, I was not alive when this happened. So I should have zero guilt about it. Mm -hmm. But just as a, a member of the fan base, it was like, you know, yeah, maybe maybe he did work so hard maybe he did do so much and push himself so far for the sake of making his fans happy that that actually brings me to another question is when stars such as elvis and his his let's face it tragedy kind of crumble under the pressure do you believe that we own some of that guilt do we also put too much it wasn't just Tom Parker that did it. Oh no! It I mean, too. no, and I, I and, and my I think mom that, even says that too. Like my dad's first concert when he was nine years old was Elvis Presley. Oh, I'd give anything. <laughs> and so they would always say, "It's like no, Tom wasn't the only guilty party. We I mean, did it too." No, I I one hundred percent agree with that. Like no, Tom was not the only guilty party. Mm. Tom's guilt lies in deception i feel yes i feel like his guilt comes from deception he treated elvis and referred to elvis as merchandise yeah. because let's face it this is a carny a yeah. guy that's He's used a to snowman he he often called himself the snowman and a con man however mm. you however you want to look at it he was not what he presented himself to elvis as yeah in that situation i feel like he took full advantage of a young mind Somebody that was willing to push and do whatever it took. And he saw that opportunity and what Elvis was capable of and took full advantage of that. Yeah. But at the same time, the fans never stopped. No. Like, even when he was gone to Germany for years and wasn't doing anything, really, he himself wasn't doing anything. The fans never stopped. So I think that, that push, that drive was always there. Like, if I don't, if I don't keep them happy, I'm going to lose them. So no, I feel like the fans are I mean, I don't I don't want to say just as guilty. Yeah. But I mean, the the fans have every bit of the responsibility that Parker did. When you see you see it so big today with with I mean, you see Taylor all Swift kinds of celebrities. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, even movie actors like 
Hugh Jackman, and you see. I mean, even just your social media influencers at this point, like the pressure is there. If you don't keep yourself 100% of the time in front of your audience, you're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. And that's it's a big push it's a big drive and i honestly don't want that headache yeah (laughs) i would i would not want that like i have enough pressures and stressors in my life as just me like between work and home and me yeah to take on the concerns and cares of any kind of extra (laughs) no absolutely so if you could talk to him today what is one thing you would say or ask um i would ask why he didn't go with his gut that would be the biggest thing because from so many interviews that i've i've read and and listened to and things like that over the years it's there, there there came a time that he was very unhappy with what he was doing with his career because it wasn't what he wanted it was what parker wanted mm-hmm. he wanted to go to europe and tour he wanted to go and see the world on tour. Like, he wanted to connect with all of his fans. And he wasn't allowed to. And he wanted so many times to tell Parker, hey, it's over, it's over, it's over. But he never did because Parker would come back in and be like, well, if I go, this goes. If I Mm -hmm. go, that goes. It's like, but you, you are Elvis. He is not Elvis. You are the man. You are at this point the legend like why that that sounds so familiar to what taylor swift is having to deal with or has been dealing with absolutely with the manager that she had to begin with Mm. and here's the thing and this may be directly correlated to the fact that since she has gotten out from underneath that thumb that she was under she has managed to finally break the record held by Elvis yeah. because she's been able to do these. But to think she went with her gut. Outside, it, yeah. Exactly. It's like if you're not happy, which, I mean, I get it. There's legalities and there's all kinds of things involved. Sure. I, I, I do understand that. But I genuinely feel like if he would have gone with his gut instinct and said, I am not happy. This is not what I want to be doing. This is what I want to be doing. We would have followed. The fans would have followed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%, because of, because of who it is. I mean, let's face it. He was His movies weren't great. I'm not going to lie to you. that's one of my first memories was Kissing Cousins on oh, VHS. Oh, see? <laughs> no. See, like, even as devout of a fan as I am, like, I will find myself, like, if you pull up my Spotify right now, it's on Elvis of some kind. Yeah. It's on some playlist. It's on something. I, I tend to skip through a lot of the movie tunes mm-hmm. just because that's kind of when he checked out. Yeah. That, that Hollywood phase is was he he went through the motions. It was show up, do what you got to do, sing the song you're going to sing, and go. Like, he didn't care about that because he wanted to genuinely act. He didn't want to do the next crooner tune. Mm. He didn't want to do the next chick flick. He wanted to genuinely act, which you, you kind of got to see a little bit in Jailhouse Rock, King Creole especially. Yeah. But after that, it's just kind of, it's the same formula. They found a formula, and they just plug and play from that point on. Oh, yeah. Uh, Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii, Paradise uh, Hawaiian style, Happy Go Lucky, Girl Happy, Kid Galahad. The list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, there's a blueprint. It's a plug and play. You see it today, too. There's a guy, there's a girl. She's resistant. He's determined. She plays hard to get. He's willing to chase. End of the day, everybody's going home happy. Mm. 
it's the same. You still see it today. Yeah, it's the same plug and play that Hollywood has used mm-hmm. for years. Okay, good on you. You found something that works. It's oh. like the Hallmark Channel exactly, <laughs> formula. But, but like, yeah, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Like, yeah. yes, the songs were different. They had songs that were written specifically for different yes. movies. And learned the other day that they had very specific writers. Like, it was a closed set, if you will. They would only take music from those writers. Um, if Elvis found a song that he felt fit the script of the movie, nope. If it didn't come from one of these approved yeah. writers, it wasn't happening. He had zero say in the matter. And it's like, come on. like that's Which is also the formula. crazy yep. because the amount of songs that he wound up covering or oh, releasing. I mean, Elvis never, and that was I think that was kind of one of the things that I did admire, is he never claimed to be a songwriter. He never claimed to want to be a songwriter. He wished he had the skill. But he's like, look, I don't write the songs. I just sing the songs. Right. And he had his way of taking the song and putting his little twist, his little spin, where, yes, it's the same song, but it's also his version. It's not the same copy and paste in his voice. He put his own little spin on it. Do some people feel that that was beyond unfair to some of the artists that he was doing the cover of? Sure. Absolutely, but they had their audience, too. Like his, his version of Unchained Melody, How Great Thou Art, different. I mean, even going back to Hound Dog, going from those yeah. like earlier bluesier sets. Well, it's like, and I made the, the reference, I don't know how many people actually picked it up, uh, about the Mississippi-born, yeah, Tennessee-inherited. The, the, the Delta Talking blues. about uh, Aretha Franklin yeah. and the fact that uh, King. Otis okay. Redding wrote... Respect. Respect, but it didn't gain any kind of popularity until Aretha, Aretha got did a it. hold of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a way, yes, he might have been stepping on some toes, but he always gave credit where it was due. Like, yeah. that's oh, not, and that's and not my song. That's so and so's song. Redding Would said that girl may have went and stole my song, but it sounds a whole lot better when her she yeah, does it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I haven't seen anywhere. This is me, personally. I haven't seen anywhere where anybody seemed to get too terribly upset about it. Because they right. got recognition off of it, too. Yeah. So, it's yeah. like, okay. And he was actually really good at that. Like yeah. I said, he was really good at be like, yeah, I got my version, but it... Yeah, it's, you know. it's, it's their song. They, yeah. they did it. I just, I like the song. I it, it moved me emotionally, mm-hmm. so I took it and did it. My well, way. in a lot of those live recordings, he said this was originally written by yeah, blah, absolutely. blah, 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 well, blah. Well, the live music, if you're, if you're going to listen to Elvis, if you're not an Elvis fan, you're not an Elvis person, and you, you want to tiptoe into the waters, listen to the live stuff, mm. please. Some of my favorites, the little anecdotes during Love Me Tender. Honestly, I've seen, and seen so many documentaries, and I've watched so many live performances, and listened to so many live performances, that now, even when it's the studio version... I hear the live version in my mm-hmm. head because those are the ones that I've grabbed a hold right. of because that's where personality came through. Yeah. And that's, it's huge. That's, that's part of what made the man who he was, made him the performer that he was. That's where he was meant to be, was on a stage performing live in front of his fans. Wow. Um, do you think he faked his death? Even if he's not alive now. <laughs> I don't. Um, you know, part of me, I guess part of me as a fan wishes, like, yeah, it would be really cool if he was still around. If he'd have gotten on the plane and if, went with her. Yeah, yeah. It, but at the same time, it's like, 
as emotionally attached as he was to so many people, if for no other reason, I don't think he could have done that to Lisa Marie. No. If for if for any other reason, I don't I don't think he could have done it to Lisa Marie. I mean, at that point, that was that was the piece of his heart that he had left. Yeah. Like he lost his mom while he was in the army. His mm-hmm. dad was just kind of there. Yeah. His business manager. Did the movie portray the dad correctly? Was he just kind of a pushover? Yeah, I mean, he was just kind of there. I mean, he he spent two years in jail for forging a check when Elvis was like four or five years old. He was just little. Um, which, granted, it was a check that was originally for $4, and he made it for 14 Let that sink in for just a second. And he did two years in prison. <laughs> for turning a $4 check into a $14, into a $14 check. Just so, he wow. could, just so he could buy groceries to feed his wife and child he went to and he went to prison for two years now elvis was able elvis and his mom were able to go and visit like once a week Mm -hmm. but at that point in time it was it was elvis his mom gladys and his grandma wow and that was it so he he was the man at the house another one and under the mom and the grandma was an not a fully absent father but well and then and then when vernon did come back i mean he was he worked as a trucker so he was gone and then he was there and then he was gone and he was there so like to say he had a fantastic father figure would probably be an understatement but i also think that that's where a lot of the drive and determination came from he didn't want to see his mom suffer anymore she'd already worked as hard as he ever wanted to see her work yeah. That was his goal, was to make sure that he she, she never, never had, had to, work. to work again. Well, yeah. that's a major driving factor for a lot of people. I mean, you look at 90% of of athletes. Athletes, musicians, a lot yeah. of these people that are just, they push and push and push. You know, home is that driving factor, whether it's mom or spouse or kids. Do you think he could have survived today if he like social media do you think if he was coming up today (laughs) or would he have just been like this isn't for me you know under the right circumstances i want to say yes that he could have done it because that that constant push was Mm. there he had that motivation but at the same time the simplicity of the time that he was in versus the the technology and all of the crazy stuff that we have now I don't know. I think that's part of what his sound was, was the simplicity. Yeah. Not the, the crazy auto-tunes yeah. and enhancements. Just his voice and instruments. Hashtag hips don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I'll, that's all the questions I had. You've, you've answered them fantastically. Well, thanks. It's something I'm passionate about, <laughs> you know. I didn't write a seven-page paper in school without cracking open a book. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I had to make sad but true. I had to make up references. I just picked some books that I'd read over the years yeah. and sorted them on my work cited page and was brave enough to tell the teacher that I did so. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to check your references. I was like, okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Right. Most of this stuff came from my brain. I remember it. Yeah. I just don't remember exactly which yeah. book. Yeah. And it's I, all I, true. I, yeah. I made a I think I made a 98 on the paper because when the, the format changed on my work cited page ah. from like the program that I was using to where it actually printed, but my facts were there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we definitely want to thank you for coming in and uh, talking to us. Um, we're actually going to ask you if you wouldn't mind hanging around for a little bit just to be able to get a few things for the Patreon side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of this stuff, of course, is going out to the folks who don't want to fully support but enjoy listening. But Absolutely. for those of you that are actually giving some of your hard-earned dollars to be able to get 
more in-depth and more behind the scenes. We're going to have Mallory stick around with us for a few minutes while we get into some other stuff about the the lifetimes and influences mm. of one Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley. Fun fact, did you know it didn't start out with two A's? It was only one. That's why there are people who think that his he signature was his death. yeah because yeah. well later in life he he wound up switching over to the two um he said it just made sense that's yeah. that's how everybody else did it that's yeah. what was recognizable so that's what he did cuz on his tombstone it's the it's the double the, a the double a and people yep. are like no he had one a that's There's why he faked his death and all yeah yeah i so, know that that's a driving mentality oh, absolutely. why he faked his death and heck yeah well, Mallory, we definitely want to thank you again for coming up and hanging out with us today. Thank you for all the <laughs> the information, a lot of the stuff that probably weren't going to be able to find through a Wikipedia page, uh, stuff that's going to take either getting some firsthand stories or uh, um, even deeper scouring into the, the world of the interwebs or I've back to the old school, school actual books. printed books. That's what books. I used was actual printed books, but yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a Absolutely. blast. Thank you, Mel. And honestly, I think right there would probably be a good time to wrap it up with the normal episode. Yeah. Uh, if you want to continue reading or listening along uh, and learning some more stuff as we are, uh, we are going to pick up with the 1960 through 1968 times which is definitely more during the film era of elvis's life and times uh and of course we are looking on trying to cover the 1968 through 1973 which is of course known as the comeback era uh specifically starting in 68 with the comeback special there's again too many highlights to get into this uh we're only going to hit some of the higher points uh, including his marriage to Priscilla, uh, them having the daughter Lisa Marie, mm. and unfortunately his death uh, in 1973. But like I said, right now we are going to go ahead and cut it off from the regular episode, yeah. and we will see you guys back over with us over on the Patreon side. Absolutely. Take care of yourselves, take care of others, and cheers to you, legends. Thanks for listening to another episode of Between Two Barrels. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information about what's happening with any of the Studio 66 shows, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, click the thumbs up, whatever you have to do to make sure you get your fill of this legendary content. To do so, search Studio 66 on Facebook or Instagram, or the Studio 66 playlist on YouTube from Tennessee Legend Distillery. You can also subscribe to our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash tldstudio66, for additional content for all of the Studio 66 shows, as well as gifts from the different Studio 66 podcasts and Tennessee Legend Distillery. And if that wasn't enough, you can also visit our website, tldstudio66.com, where you can find links to all of the shows and podcasts, as well as merchandise for all of the individual podcasts. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Heck, you can even leave us a voicemail if you like via SpeakPipe, or send us an email at tldtube23 at gmail.com. However you go about it, make sure you don't miss out on getting even more legendary info about the studio as well as the distillery from studio 66 presented by 
Tennessee Legend Distillery.